Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest-running dedicated G.I. Joe comics podcast. At least that's what my mother says. If you're new to the show, you can find out all of the details over at the website talkingjoe.co.uk. Today, we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 284 with a very special guest. But before we do that, let me introduce the Judge Dredd to my Walter the Robot. Ooh, that's niche. It's my co-host, a real American Tim. It's Tim Finn. Hello, Mark, and hello, listeners. And as an American, I can I can tell you straightly, flatly, that uh, the only Judge Dredd comics I've read are the some of the team ups with Batman. <laughs> they're good. They're good. Particularly the first one. Ooh, Simon Bisley, lovely. And uh, before we do our chit chat, we've got someone with us. Uh, let's uh, introduce him. Today we have Chuck X. Goran, uh, the general at the option38.com website. Hello, Chuck. How are you doing? Hello. Doing well, thank you. I uh, appreciate you guys reaching out to me and including me on this. This is my first foray into a uh, podcast, so really excited to be here, and uh, let's see what happens. Um, Mark, would it be helpful for our listeners who who aren't so familiar with Chuck to give them the quick rundown of Option Thirty Eight? Well, uh, I'll, I'll give I'll give you my plotted one, and then I think Chuck can fill in fill in the details because I want to find out more. But um, it's essentially, you know, I stumbled upon uh, the Option Thirty Eight website and and Facebook feed just as part of my general research and. It became my to go to destination really for for looking at uh, reviews because it's exhaustive in terms of content, uh, but but also you know very current and you know up to date co- covering all of the uh, GI Joe issues as they they come out and uh, you know well structured, well thought out, and I know that they're well thought out because generally they chime with what I'm thinking. And and yeah, it was a good place when I when I was doing the the podcast for checking to see if there was any sort of themes, ideas, Easter eggs that that I should be talking about that that I had missed. And uh, yeah, typically I would give myself a little pat on the back that generally I hadn't. And you know, if there was something particularly good that I had picked up that uh, that Chuck had missed, I'd sort of give myself a mental high five and say, "Yes, I am doing nerding well." Mark, do you think that Chuck uh, at Option 38 has 
reviews of comics besides G.I. Joe, like Batman Judge Dredd crossovers? Rather than me talk about what I think the website covers, uh, let's let's turn over to, to Chuck and he can talk us uh, through the website. So what, what was the 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 genesis you know and what does it uh you know what does it cover what do you just and what do you decide to include and, and not include well i actually started the website in uh probably the late 90s or even uh, around 2000 and it was just um i used my real name it was a different domain name back then and i just r- rambled about all kinds of stuff back then um local sports i did comic books i did music shows i'd gone to uh bad jokes random slice of life stuff and it just wasn't finding an audience. I really didn't know what I was, what I was doing. And then, um, probably around 2007 or so, I was, I'd, I'd get busted when I go on dates or employers or job interviews, and people would know about me and all my quirky little funny hobbies. And that kind of threw me off because I was like, well, I'll tell you about that stuff when I get to it. So, um, around that time, I refocused my website into. Um, just specifically on comics and uh, G.I. Joe in particular. And I would also do um, first issue reviews because first issues are the most important thing in the world for comic collectors. So I would find random things that I would review there. Before I jumped to first issues, I would just do random bargain bin comics I had found. Like, um, for instance, there was one time I did a real in-depth article about the uh, old issue of Power Man Iron Fist where they become truckers for an issue. And it was really a little too ticky-tacky. I get too detailed, and my columns were so super long. So when I relaunched as Option 38 in 2007, I took a more laid-back approach to things and um, had, had a lot more fun with it. Because I figure you could spend 15, 20 minutes reading a comic book or spend 20 to 30 reading my article. So that's why I took a more laid-back approach to it. And also around 2007, when I streamlined things, that summer, I had just met Sergeant Slaughter at the uh, San Diego Comic Convention. He put me in the Cobra Clutch, not the Camel Clutch, the Cobra Clutch. And I've just had a lot of enthusiasm for G.I. Joe. It rekindled my old love of G.I. Joe. And I thought, hey, why not go through and redo all the comic books issue by issue? And that's that's what I did then. And how was it that you actually got into G.I. Joe? And so my um, love and appreciation of G.I. Joe actually stretched back to the 70s. I had a... Um, older brother uh, he was six years older than me and he was into the um 12 inch gi joes the adventure team if you will which were kind of like uh barbie dolls for boys um so i knew of those i knew about those we played with those and um, was very well aware of gi joe and so it kind of faded away by the end of the 70s um and then one morning in 1982 i was getting ready for school i remember i was watching the local blinky the clown show and this commercial came on. It was really bright and loud. It had this really cool animation. And it's talking about the legend of G.I. Joe. And I was like, the legend? Wow. That's taking me back to the 70s. And I remember those big G.I. Joes my brother used to play with. Wow. I, it looks like this is being redone for the 80s. How awesome is that? So um, at that point, I was really interested. I started buying the... Um, figures a few a few weeks later i think i found um uh breaker and short fuse those those my first two figures i bought i like breaker because he seemed to be the star of the first toy commercial when they uh they say get breaker he can do it they put him on the ram and 
he does whatever mission those kids were playing with on that first toy commercial. And then I like short fuse because he had that cool visor. And um, after that, it was my thing. It was on. It surpassed all my other toy hobbies as a kid. I spent all my allowance, paper out money, birthday money, um, buying G.I. Joe stuff up and, um, and the comics. I think in the first five or six years of G.I. Joe toys, there was maybe a few things I didn't buy, and that was like those battle packs or some little small stuff. And for the comic, I started following it with issue eight monthly and um, lasted lasted uh, up through 1994. I followed it on a monthly basis when it ended. So um, a pretty long and robust experience with G.I. Joe. Chuck, do you... Do you have long boxes? Do you go to a comic book store? Do you do mail order? Do you read comics on a tablet? Oh yeah, after uh, long boxes. Ooh, I've got probably 30, 34 long boxes um, some located somewhere. I had always known about comics since I was uh, as far back as I can remember. They were in fact the uh, reason I spurred myself to learn to read as a human. When I was a little kid, we would have random comic books around the house, superheroes, um, uh, Star Wars, um, a, a lot of Avengers comics we always just float around the house, random stuff. And whenever I would get a comic somewhere at a spinner rack, at a convenience store, grocery store, what have you, I would always say, um, uh, I asked my, ask my parents to, or my br brother to read it for me, and I'd have to wait until they could read it to me. So that was the reason I was like, I don't want to wait. I want to learn to read on my own. So comics helped me to read. I didn't really become a collector until that G.I. Joe issue 8 that I found one day. And when I did, I started collecting um, Avengers a lot more, getting back into the superheroes. And I think probably about less than two years after that first G.I. Joe issue, Marvel launched that Secret Wars. And that's when I got into all of the, um, the whole Marvel universe, if you will. And just started really expanding my collection, going back, finding older stuff, buying new stuff on a monthly basis. And that even continues up until today. Nowadays, I only get G.I. Joe uh, from just the one issue a month or whenever it comes out and I get Avengers through the mail through a direct subscription. Did you buy issue one of G.I. Joe in 82? So yeah, I didn't buy issue one right when it came out. Um, we live in the suburbs and all we had around us was a grocery store, a mall, and a uh, Target. And neither of those sold comics as they came out. So I didn't get issue one right then. I, um, <clears throat> Excuse me. I actually eventually found it at a Target book rack with some other golden books, other kitty books. I found the uh, special treasury edition, which I think was just number one re-released. And so I bought that there. And this is probably probably, um, probably about two or three months after I bought my first issue number eight. So I did buy issue one when it was fairly new, but not when it was exactly new. Oh, and I got that um, first issue of G.I. Joe that I bought, issue number eight. I actually found that at a Walden Books, that mall that was in my neighborhood. Um, they would, they started selling comic books around that time. They just have a very small lot they would throw on the bottom shelf or magazine rack. And I stumbled in there one day and found number eight. And good old Walden Books got me hooked on everything. Not the first person that we have spoken to on this podcast or who is speaking right now who got their first issue of G.I. Joe at a Walden Books. And, and also not the first person we've spoken to whose first figure is Breaker. I think uh, I think that was also Jay uh, and and John John Thurman also had a uh, started with Breaker. Chuck, are you are you visiting a comic book store regularly nowadays? 
yeah, nowadays I don't really visit a comic book store that often. Uh, I go once a month, maybe less, to um, see a local store out here. I just buy my G.I. Joe issue, I go in, and pay it, and I'm out. It's, uh, I, the, the, this particular store I think is actually pretty decent. This will kind of give away where I live, but that's all right. It's uh, All Seas Collectibles out in Aurora, Colorado. C as in Charlie. Now, like I said, nowadays I just get my G.I. Joe monthly book there. But I actually stumbled onto this store when I was delivering tortillas back in 1994. And I'd go there sporadically ever since. It wasn't my main store. There was another um, store that's closed down. I would, um, from about 1999 up until 2013, I would um, ride my bike to the store every week. And biking, cycling, if you will, is my other hobby. Another one of my hobbies. And I would, um, it was kind of cool because each, each hobby was spurring the other. I would bike to read comic books and I would read comic books because I was biking. So it was kind of fun how that how that, that worked together. Um, back then I had a, uh, had a pool list, and so I would probably spend about uh, 30, 40 bucks a month on comics back then. Plus the um, random forays out into the collectible market to uh, buy some back issues and find some just random fun stuff. And, uh, you know, specifically around your, uh, your your website, it's it's, you know, pretty comprehensive in terms of covering every single issue of the Larry Hammer ARA. I think all the special missions and, and bits and bobs besides including, you know, GI Joe stuff and, and, uh, the, the odds random nugget in there as, as well. I think you, you talked about like, for example, the, the storm, uh, mini series by Warren, Warren Ellis, I think it was. Yeah. How, how's that experience being for, for you? Yeah. It sounded, it sounded like you started in 2007. So, so you've been, you've been going for 14 years. Yeah, it was relaunched in 2007 when I um, sort of rebranded and I became anonymous. I didn't want my real name out there before, like in 2000 or so. I wanted my real name, wanted to be famous, want everyone to know me. And I realized that's probably not a good idea. So um, 2007, I became a little more anonymous with uh, starting the G.I. Joe reviews and uh, comic book reviews in general. And I, I adopted the uh, silly moniker of Chuck X. Warren, which, as you guys probably know, is the... Um, file name of the bridge layer driver Tollbooth, and i just thought it was such a um uh, funny name i like that x stood for nothing and so i just it was kind of a uh, really obscure character so i used that as my pseudonym if you will for writing the website but when you go on the website i'm actually on there as general flag that's just the admin name i thought that sounded cool chuck do you also have uh, gi joe episodes on dvd and a toy collection i'll say yes and yes a uh, fan of both the cartoon and the comic. The cartoon, not so much. I remember when it first came on, another one of those flashback stories. I was coming home from school one day, I turned on the, um, we had one of those old TVs, you turn it on, it took like about a minute for it to fire up to get the picture. And so I came on probably about after school one day around 3.45, turn it on, and I hear some noise going on. Meanwhile, I walk in the kitchen, get myself a snack. And then I come back and I hear that dun 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 dun. dun. And I'm like, GI Joe will return. And I was like, Oh my God! I think I squealed and said, It's a show. I was so happy that GI Joe was finally a show. And of course, that snippet I caught was the first five parter. I think it, the um, the mass device, or uh, I think it just called GI Joe, a real American hero in some markets. And so yeah, I saw. I think I caught like the third, or I think it was the third episode that I caught. And I was like, Wow, this has been on for a while. And I remember, came back from commercial. 
now back to G.I. Joe. And there was Snake Eyes doing cool stuff. I was like, oh, awesome. They've got Snake Eyes doing Snake Eyes stuff. I love this show. Snake Eyes was like carrying a radioactive container and that he met, meets, meets that old guy fight, fighting a bear. I thought this was so cool. It was very exciting. But then um, when the cartoon finally became daily in 1985, I remember being a little disappointed because I wasn't seeing as much cool Snake Eyes stuff every day. And it was very different from the comic books and the only little world I created for G.I. Joe in my head. They were more like the Super Friends as opposed to like the secret um, special missions force. So that's why I was, um, wasn't a huge fan of the, of the cartoon, but I would rather watch that than Woody Woodpecker or any of the other countless reruns that were on TV during the 80s. Uh, the toys, yeah, like I said, I collected, um, I was a huge collector of the toys up until um, 1991 or so. Um, I, I remember I was a senior in high school, and just for kind of like a joke gift, somebody got me the um, Sonic Fighter Apache. I remember it was kind of a fun toy. We opened up that night, my brother, dad, and I, and we were playing around with it, and we thought it was kind of a neat toy. But I realized that kind of G.I. Joe had kind of changed since then. They're more like toys with foam missiles and sounds and stuff. It wasn't really the stuff I had started out with. And obviously I was getting pretty old at that time, so I wasn't really into toys anymore. I think the switch for me was um, I started collecting probably around um, probably when I was in sixth or seventh grade. It became much more of a collecting thing instead of a playing with toys kind of thing. Um, so that was a huge deal. And then even in my adult life, when they had the re-releases, like the 1997 15th anniversary, I remember seeing that and just thinking it was so cool to buy. And then I had some other um, things along the way since uh, 1997, like the um, the Spy Troops when they came out. I bought a few of those. Um, really became a big fan of the modern toys when they released those two packs with the uh, half-issue comics and other things. That was like around 2000 or seven or so, which also led into the um, renewed enthusiasm on the website and everything. Yeah, I even had the uh, the flag, the USS flag back in the day, but um, it was actually a traumatic experience for me when I got it. Um, I didn't uh, understand the full size of the actual thing. I'd yeah, I had every uh, G.I. Joe thing. I'd buy it just um, out of tradition almost for uh, up till then. I was like, oh, I have to get this aircraft carrier. That looks sweet. And I, I just thought, oh, yeah, it's big. I'll just slide it I'll just slide it underneath my bed or underneath my uh, toy rack. No problem. It'll it'll fit. Yeah, i got to get that aircraft carrier. And so I got it that um, for Christmas, and then we set it up in our, our living room. It took up, like, almost the whole living room. And then I remember my dad turning to me and saying, all right, we have to get this in your room. And I just, oh, no. <laughs> and I thought, where's this going to fit in my room? This thing's gigantic. And so it kind of traumatized me because we had to go in like that Christmas evening. We spent afternoon even. We spent just cramming my room and reorganizing everything. And it kind of just freaked me out. We pushed my bunk bed in the corner. And then I remember for the next uh, six months or so, I, I would wake up and there was like six inches between my bed and the USS flag. So it was really there, just taking up my whole room. And um, and I was a little disappointed because it was basically just a big shelf for the Sky Striker. And a lot of this space just take, this space being eaten up in my room. That's not to say I, I really, there were some cool parts about the uh, flag as well, like that cool little two-level command center with the uh, bridge and all that. I really liked that, that was pretty neat. But still, just having this thing always there, even as, you know, day and night, <laughs> right next to my bed, 
was a little freaky for me. But probably like a, about six months after that, we actually moved all my G.I. Joe stuff down to the basement. Uh, had a lot more free space down there. And um, two years later, when I got the Defiant, I really loved that thing. That thing was gigantic, but I liked it because every inch of it was being used and there was no wasted space. So I was over my, my trauma, hopefully, by that time. This is this is interesting. The first time that I've heard uh, someone who got the flag and it was not a purely positive experience, but I can see how in a very small room or a very small home, it could backfire. And it, it's, it's less about like freedom and celebrating your collection and your imagination and more about uh, making you strain. Yeah. Making yes, putting a strain on the, the space of your of your room. Excellent. Um, yeah, as a as a sort of someone who's building up my collection again, uh, the, the, those vehicles, um, yeah, they present a little bit of a, a di- dilemma for me because um, you know I love, for example, the the hydrofoil. I love the whale. These are incredible toys, um, but I don't have the space to put them anywhere. I would literally get them and then immediately put them in the attic, which seems like a ridiculous waste. So um, yeah, so so I'm just limiting myself to to, to figures at the uh, at the moment, unfortunately. Um, a question for you, uh, uh, Chuck. Bringing it back to the the website, um, where does the where's the name um, um, option thirty eight come from? Does it have a special meaning? Well, the actual name option thirty eight it's um, is the name of a comic book I uh, I had started. Well. Not a comic book, so I never published it, but it was the name of some cartoons and comics I would draw going back to when I was probably 13 or 14. They started out as uh, very uh, inspired by G.I. Joe. I like to draw little cartoon animals. Uh, I think Anthromorphs is the official name for it. As a young age, I was really inspired by DC's Captain Carrot and the Amazing Zoo Crew comics. I like that style and kind of um, cartoon animals doing people things. I was really a fan of that. And so I made all these characters that were clearly inspired by G.I. Joe. For instance, I had a guy named, um, it was sort of ripoff of Alpine, and his name was Boulder. So you can kind of see the connection there. Uh, I think think my Boulder was a pika, though, a little animal. I also had a my snake guy stand in. His name was Sundown, but he even had the um, the uh, Arashikagi symbol on his, on his shirt in the upper left corner. So... It was just my way of still having fun with G.I. Joe, but doing it on my terms and doing my own little characters. So I named these guys, originally I called them the Fast Action Response Team, which is a pretty fun acronym. And then I thought as I got older, I couldn't really market that. I, could, I don't think I could have a uh, comic book with that acronym and do well. So I came up with the name Option 38, which was like, they are the, um, in this little world I have, it's a post-apocalyptic world run by animals because I was a big fan of post-apocalyptic movies as a kid. In this new world, this in my mind, the government would have um, options of negotiation when there's a conflict. So like first option, we talk to them. Second option, we bribe them, blah, 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 all the way down to 38. Yeah, 38 was your last option. That's when you call in the fast action response team. And so I just, option 38, the fast action response team, or just option 38. Now, I would like draw their little adventures over the years and the little comics I made just for myself. Um, I'd work them in my uh, art projects in school. I'd have a little, I'd throw the characters in there without really any explanation. But so I, w- I would very much 
kept doing it. Um, my intent with the website was to eventually have option38.com be like a webcomic for these guys. But um, I've had a domain name for, shoot, almost 20 years now, and it hasn't happened. So I think they're still in my mind. That's And they may make an appearance one day, but for now they're not. And so that's where the name option38 comes from. That explanation pleases me because I, I always thought that I, I was miss you know being dense and missing some really obvious sort of um, cultural uh, you know joke in the title and thinking I mean, I'm just failing failing some on my on my geek creds here that I don't know what it means um, and in terms of assembling your your website and doing all of these sort of reviews and and you know looking looking at all of the details of the all of these issues you know up to you know, starting at one, I guess, and, and working your way up to 284 will be next. You know, how, how was that ex- experience? And, and did you find almost a new appreciation um, by for, you know, for, for, for the content by forcing yourself to kind of look at it in, you know, that micro detail rather than just purely as a, a I guess, reading experience? Yes, I did find a new appreciation for the comics. I discovered there um, were a lot of Hama's little Hama-isms, if you will, and the way he writes, I found those were bleeding over into G.I. Joe from some of his other works. Um, for instance, back in the 70s, he did one of the Marvel Anthology books with some of the first uh, stories about Iron Fist. And I thought a lot of that um, mysticism, martial arts action that he touched upon in Iron Fist, he actually brought over into G.I. Joe with the ninja stuff and obviously snake eyes storm shadow etc and a really interesting th- thing well to me it was interesting that I f- a whole new appreciation for the gi joe comics going back indexing them somebody on the website once contacted me about the character raptor i always thought raptor was kind of a ridiculous throwaway character but um somebody told me that there were a lot of similarities between raptor and the character of uh, dean moriarty from jack kerouac's on the road and that was something I never caught the first time through. And even when I would read some of the old issue with the Raptor when I was in my teens and 20s, I never caught that. But here it was, I was much older, and I was like, oh, I had never seen that before. Um, Hama, Hama actually is giving a little reference to Jack Kerouac's writing with um, Raptor. I think Raptor would say, yes, yes, like uh, Dean Moriarty would say in the book, and also because Raptor is based in Denver, which is where uh, most, most of On the Road was set. So that really gave me a whole new appreciation as well as the little triviata and stuff I'd missed before. Uh, shall we Shall we talk the new issue of G.I. Joe? Let's do it. Comic talk, oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them, Tim and Mark discuss them, whoa. Comic talk, oh, comic talk. Larry Hammer writes them, Tim and Mark discuss them, whoa. Okay, so uh, G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, issue 284, released 14th of July 2021, although possibly not distributed to everywhere that week. That, that is what it is. It's uh, interior dated June 2021, so I think we've still got the distribution problems kind of bearing fruit in terms of the uh, the way that they, it looks as published, but um, there we go. Uh, the writer, as always, is Larry Hammer, artist Andrew Lee Griffiths, colour with no S, 
Colours, Jay Brown. Letters, Neil Utaki, Senior Editor, Tom Waltz. Editor, Megan Brown. And Research Specialist is Diana Davis. This is Murder by Assassination Part 4. Let's look at those things that they put on the front of the books. Let's have a look at the covers in the gallery. Cover A is drawn by Andrew Lee Griffith with colours by Jay Brown. And Mm -hmm. it's uh, Hawk, Stalker, Snake Eyes and Scarlet um, hopping out or having hopped out of a tomahawk. Uh, We are on the ground. There's some uh, we're in a ravine. Uh, there are bullets flying into the the scene, and we can see uh, the rotor blades whirring uh, at the top behind the logo. This cover it's it's daytime, and it's you know it's in a modern comics you know rendered coloring style. And Andrew Lee Griffith doesn't spot many blacks. There's just a little bit on Snake Eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, this cover reminds me very much of the cover to GI Joe 111 which is by Lee Weeks and is set during the um, Gulf Crisis storyline in Trusel Abysmia, uh, where we have a helicopter and Scarlet, Snake Eyes, Jinx, and Storm Shadow have just hopped out uh, of this helicopter and we're similarly uh, looking up. And That's a really good spot. I wonder if that's intentional. Um, I don't... I don't know if I if I was to guess I would say no, but but they are they are like you know if you squint and conceptually mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, similar, you know I've I, in a previous episode I I said that I I wish uh, Andrew Lee Griffith um, differentiated a little bit more in his inking between um, thin lines and thick lines or thin medium and thick lines um, sort of all of his lines are thin and uh, that puts an additional uh, sort of pressure on colors to separate elements right and so uh in the cover to 284 you know scarlet has you know bright red hair and also this very bright highlight on the top of her head and then this very thin black line that separates her from stalker behind her you know he's like five or ten feet behind her and a much thicker black line uh at the top of her hair would separate them more and what jay brown does here to push stalker back as he adds a haze sort of like a very fine mist of white or gray, uh, which is a kind of atmospheric perspective, which pushes Stalker back. And that is one solution. And it it does logically fit here because there's smoke and dust being kicked up. But in a lot of modern comics with with busy images and busy covers, um, colorists do do this. And um, I find it a little artificial. And part of why I mentioned the cover to 111 is because um, though it is less busy, so it's not a perfectly fair comparison, right? There's there's basically no background. There's just like blue sky or pink cloud with a tiny bit of white highlight on the on the cloud, right? And it's you know the, the, this the cover to 284 is maybe more exciting because it's more immediate. We're on the ground. It's sort of a greater sense of danger. There's more drama in the sky with some clouds. There's you know this smoke and this dust, um, but. Uh, you know, I've talked about how I like old school art and old school coloring, and this comparison is pretty keen here, where uh, the Lee Weeks cover from uh, 1991, there are very few colors, right? Like Snake Eyes is just this all flat one color, like this very, very dark blue, dark gray, and he's got a little bit of a highlight on his back, right? Jinx is just all red, just all red with a little bit of spotted black, right? Um, there's no... 
but there's no rendering on scarlet. She's just three colors, red, uh, orange, yellow, and uh, light purple. And because it's less busy, um, it, it reads a little more clearly because there's less going on. It takes less time to sort of like decipher the cover. You know, Snake Eyes' hand and Uzi gets a little lost up against the, um, uh, the I guess the turbine at the top of the, uh, the tomahawk. And, um, you know, a different treatment of color and line weight would help separate those, those elements. I do like this cover, um, but that is an example of how like modern, you know, inking and coloring um, is, is less my favorite. Uh, this, this one works as, as that example. In both uh, G.I. Joe 111 and 284, Snake Eyes is firing his Uzi lefty. And this is something that I think about when I'm, when I'm drawing characters. Sometimes the composition sort of calls for a character to be holding their weapon in their left hand, and it's easier to sort of not think about it. But mm. statistically, many more people are right-handed, and so I often then have to tell myself, no, 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 this character needs to be holding their weapon or opening a door or whatever it is uh, with their right hand. Certainly Snake Eyes you know, is going to have a sword in, in one hand and a gun in the other, and a lot of the Joes are going to have uh, maybe two weapons. So I'm not calling this out as any kind of mistake, but rather a... Uh, an example of just uh, how great Snake Eyes is, that, that he is ambidextrous. As a tiny contrast, the uh, uh, cover B of issue 284 has Snake Eyes holding his machine gun in his right hand and his sword in his left hand. Uh, so if we take you know these cover images, which are not story, but just images as some kind of canon, and Snake Eyes is definitely uh, ambidextrous. Chuck, you want to jump in on the cover to 284? Well, one thing I caught fairly randomly was I thought the uh, main cover there with the tomahawk reminded me of um, G.I. Joe European Missions number five. Um, that one just has a tomahawk at a different angle. Um, also has snake eyes jumping out of the tomahawk. And there's even a guy with a beret. In um, 284, it's Stalker. And in European Missions number five, it's actually Flint. So I thought, I think that was another. Um, not an intentional connection, just one that kind of a little happy accident, if you will. Yeah, I just typed in uh, I just typed in European Missions Five into Google, and the first uh, the top entry is uh, Option Thirty Eight. Imagine that. My note on the cover A is is probably that Scarlet just looks a little bit off in terms of um, just shooting with the, her right hand and holding another pistol in her left, just doesn't quite scan right for for me but i think that's my only qualm really about about the, do, the cover do you mean do you mean it's it's unrealistic to be handling two firearms like that or do you mean something in the anatomy or something in the perspective i, I think it's something off? it's a little bit something in the way that you would handle a firearm and the talk the heft that 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 gun has in the image makes you think that she would want to be using two two hands to to manipulate it uh but but also compositionally it looks just it it just doesn't quite scan right to me that that it looks to me like she needs to be holding that mm. that gun rather than having the 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 left arm sort of off off on that the tangent that is it's it's got i don't know I think I have thought about this since uh, since the film Barb Wire was released. What was that, 95? I can't remember. 
uh, based on a comic book. And I think that's the first time that someone pointed out to me that it's actually really difficult to have a pistol in both hands and that your your accuracy goes down significantly mm. and that I don't know if this was someone I knew who knew someone in law enforcement or in the military, but you know you you have your other hand to steady uh, your weapon, and you know we see all these action movies and comic book covers where cool characters have like two machine guns or two small firearms. Yeah, um, and and so, a, and a submachine gun much much more so than just uh, you know dual wielding pistols. The the weight of it and the uh, I guess the the, the, the recoil and, and so on. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you that uh, Scarlet on 284 probably needs to drop that sidearm and use both hands. At the same time, since it's a cover and not a, a scene in an issue, um, I, I do give it more leeway to be sort of a fantasy and an exaggeration. Um, but I, I take your point. Uh, and there, there is a handle for that for her other hand. Well, th- and maybe, and maybe, maybe that's part of the equation as to why it strikes me as looking a bit off. The fact that, that it's got such a pronounced handle on that particular hmm. uh, weapon, um, and and also let's let's note for the record as well that unfortunately this is another issue where our cover A does not tie into the uh, interior of the of the issue. Yes. And news update um, on cover A. Is it a, uh, a, a an homage or is it a coincidence in the composition? Uh, Andrew Griffiths has replied to me and said, coincidence. I was familiar familiar with that cover when I was younger, but didn't have it in mind when drawing mine, and saw it later and saw the sim- similarities. If it was a if it was an homage, I would have. Uh, proudly straight up said so also would have made it match up better i'm very literal thinking when i do homages uh would have driven me crazy making intentionally similar yet keeping it so different that's cool that while we were talking you fired off a message (laughs) and andrew lee griffith replied um Cover B by freddie williams the second and colors by andrew dalhouse so this is uh, part four of five of this uh, five parts connecting horizontal uh, panoramic shot, uh, five covers in a row that connect uh, Snake Eyes as the as throwdown Snake Eyes, right? Because he's got the slightly different helmet, is lunging toward us and with his left hand forward holding a sword, chopping up a bat. Um, in the bottom left, we can see a Stratoviper who has been kicked by Jinx, who's cropped between the cover to 284 and 283, and there are four smaller Joes in the background, Lifeline, Stalker. I think, who's all the way on the right under that bat finger? I think that is Sightline. Okay. I thought it was Night Force Sneak Peek, but Night Force Sneak Peek has gray pants. Um, uh, And then... um, uh, similarly, on the top left, right under the uh, the A of a real American hero, this this was this was a little hard for me to figure out because it's a little bit of a Spider-Man pose. Yeah. It's a little bit of a you know Batman swinging from building to building pose, and less of a you know it's not a Joe in a jetpack. It's a Joe with a with a, a giant like rope for swinging or cable, <laughs> and um, uh, because there's this really dramatic uh, sunset behind everyone uh, on the previous cover. There's a, a very strong yellow 
uh, and pink highlight on the left side of everything on this cover. And so uh, I just sort of had a hard time figuring out who this character was. And the colors very vaguely reminded me of like an Alex Ross Battle of the Planets <laughs> cover from like 2005. It's like I'm seeing like a white helmet and a red visor and green gloves or something. And then I squinted and I realized it's it's Alpine. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely Alpine. We did have Cover Girl, I believe it was, uh, swinging on the very first cover of this uh, puzzle piece. Um, so, so we do have uh, two pe- two people doing the doing the GI Joe swing. I think the um, you know, like Joes don't just have to do their specialty, right? So Cover Girl can swing. Uh, it doesn't <laughs> just have to be one of the mountain mountain folks, right? It doesn't have to be hit and run and. An alpine. At the same time, uh, you know, put one of these folks in a jetpack. Um, yeah. My my overall comment. It's very exciting to have. You know, I th- I think this is coincidental. But uh, the week that the Snake Eyes movie is released to theaters, to have since the uh, the you know Rob Liefeld uh, Snake Eyes miniseries has wrapped up, right? So and there's you don't need the synchronicity of a Snake Eyes comic book to come out. You know, the week of the Snake Eyes movie. Uh, you know, a week before, after, the month before, after, close enough, right? If there's there's stuff to buy for people who are curious. But it is fun that here's this very exciting full body cover sort of front and center. He's got his his sword and his machine gun and he's chopping up some cobras. Uh, image of Snake Eyes lunging at you on this cover. At the same time, my overall comment for this is similar to uh, my reaction from the previous three parts of this cover, which is... Um, uh, I think you would compose this differently if this were all of these characters doing the same stuff just on this cover by itself. And for for being a horizontal panoramic shot, um, you know, you, the artist becomes aware of like keeping characters away from the left and right seams and uh, maybe having sort of more negative space in the top third for, uh, for logos. Um, I like this cover. You know, I think Freddie Williams II would have drawn this um, with a slightly stronger composition if it was all of these same things just as a freestanding cover. Okay. And then with the, the retailer incentive cover is uh, by someone who I'm not familiar with, Vic Hollins. So that could be Victor or Victoria. Um, I don't know if it's incredibly sexist of me to, to sort of uh, uh, put my own, uh, you know, bias on there and think that it possibly there's a slight feminine style to uh to to it i mean the the signature looks like it's kind of got a heart uh to to it so um yeah i i i imagined it it's uh, a a lady artist so this cover is really unusual for gi joe for three reasons one we've almost never or never had a close-up of a black female on a G.I. Joe cover. There was uh, there was a character in the the like post-revolution, like the revolution run uh, in the other IDW continuity. And in the Chuck Dixon run, Doc was an African-American uh, woman. Um, but, you know, Joe has always had black guys, but not black women. So uh, this is unusual in terms of demographics, too. Uh, this is very much a portrait, and we don't often have G.I. Joe covers that are portraits. You know, Mike Zex covered a 53 as a portrait, and then 
a couple weeks ago we were talking about the Herb Trimpey cover to I'm sorry I forget but uh, an issue early on in the IDW continuation of a real American hero right Snake Eyes with the Arashikaje logo behind him um, but in terms of you know a portrait tends to be head and shoulders and is often a little bit more about you know depicting the emotions of the person being photographed or drawn rather than sort of the pose and the like environment and we we very rarely have a portrait right if you know oftentimes we have a character standing full body or a bunch of characters rushing into battle so this is unusual uh also this character's facing left and most comic book covers in america characters are facing right and lastly and most of all um, this is um, colored pencil and pastel. So it's, it's, it's not quite painted. I think there's a little bit of uh, wet media, but that might be um, like using a, a brush with some water to create a little bit of texture in these um, dry and waxy media. Mm -hmm. um, but it, it is a kind of painted cover, and yet uh, it still has black outlines. So it's this sort of midway between... Uh, you know, a painted cover that doesn't have black outlines and a traditionally drawn, like, quote, inked cover that does have uh, black outlines. And, you know, and it's it's a close-up of, of our new character. So uh, the fact that um, we see her uh, metal hand and metal shoulder is, is, is sort of like half of the import of this cover, right? Even if you don't know who this character is because you're not up on the comic, you know that this is someone involved in the G.I. Joe story. It's some new Joe or Cobra or like scientist because, you know, it, they've got a, they've got a metal arm. What, what strikes me about this, this cover is that it looks slightly two dimensional, uh, you know, and there's a few kind of tells for that. The, the gun that she's holding is, is completely, you know, side on. You don't see um, any, any of the, you know, it, any of the other aspects to it, it is it is just like a, a 2d version of of the the gun uh the, the you know her human hand that's supporting is kind of hidden behind the uh the, the robot uh hand and and um aspects i think of the the, the layout of uh you know the the torso but below the, the neck sort of seem a little bit weird in in terms of the the layout um I don't like to be mean, but but this this one isn't for for me. It sort of you know strikes me as as maybe you know a, a very young artist you know still finding their their feet and and you know sort of high school art project portraiture level. To be honest, um, sorry to be sorry to be mean, but yeah, not not for me. I feel this Vic cover looks a little amateur, um, almost surprising that it was published but it looks like um something you would see in a from an art student or even on the various online art sites um a little surprised it's uh, being used as a cover however that's no slight for the artist because i think um i think the artist is on the right right track if um i would cr critique this as an art director there are some definite elements you can work with in there uh, i think the face is very well done always found eyes for myself are a hard, very hard thing to draw. And so I think there was a good job done there. Although maybe a little overboard on those eyelashes. Um, all that said, I, like I said, I think this artist is on the right track. Maybe in two years from now, um, she'll knock her socks off. 
So um, I found a website, uh, firstnamelastname.com, Vic Hollins. Vic is in uh, uh, Arizona um, and does does artwork that is similar to uh, what we're seeing here. Um, some uh, some illustrations, some oil paintings, some murals, a little bit of comic book work, and uh, yes, a a young artist. And I think the softness of this and the texturing, because it feels so different from traditional paint in comic book covers or traditional line art in comic book covers and interiors. I think that that that's a big part of what makes this um, so different. Uh, I appreciate the the effort to bring in someone new and who may have a following that's completely different from the normal like IDW um, uh, following. Um, I do think this artist is uh, going to get better and I, I would call this a good cover, but not quite not quite ready for prime time. Some of the outlines and some of the details in like the the knuckles on the metal hand um, uh, show um, could show a little more confidence in um, rendering uh, rather than sort of the shorthand of an outline. Um, so I like that it's different and uh, and good effort, but doesn't quite feel like a G.I. Joe cover. Yeah, I was going to say, and and from the website, Vic is a lady. There we go. Just to clear that up. <laughs> uh, let's let's not spend so much time on, to, on, on this, but we have got a convention exclusive by Dave Johnson, uh, which features Caseload, um, Sherlock, and Bottom Line um, with an explosive uh, G.I. Joe packaging style backdrop. Uh, Dave Johnson, one of you know, one of my favorite artists, very competent. Maybe not the most exciting of, of, of images, uh, perhaps. The second one is featuring uh, new Joes that were introduced in the last issue, Multo and Black Hat. Uh, this art is by uh, Philippine artist uh, Roy Mercado, featuring uh, you know suitably enough given uh, the character of Multo here on his first uh, cover. So um, yeah, uh, quite a nice, uh, modern, glossy uh, style. Um, yeah, um, and these can be found on the uh, on the IDW website, I believe, if you want to track them down. The back covers uh, also feature file cards for these five new characters. File cards written by Larry Hama. Dun, dun, dun. Excellent, yeah. Uh, I think that is a great um, bonus, right? Uh, you know, it's not just it's not just the front cover art. It's something that a certain kind of Joe fan or a toy collector would really want to get. Mm. Um, uh, Dave Johnson has very occasionally like swooped in uh, to the world of GI Joe with you know a couple covers uh, from the beginning of the IDW run. Or was that early on in the IDW run, which I, I think actually were pre-existing art. Um, and he um, he was uh, working, he was applying to be the character designer on uh, G.I. Joe Renegades. Um, but uh, did not get that job. But there is some artwork out there by Dave Johnson. Mm -hmm. He's He's someone who... Um, you know, if he just became the regular cover artist, I would be very excited. And he would never, I'm sure, draw a full issue, but that would also be very exciting. Mm, yeah. um, 
I'm I'm uh, pleased that there are some convention covers uh, for this summer because that shows a certain confidence in you know people getting out and about and going to conventions and then if you can't or you don't feel comfortable that they're still available on the IDW website. Um, if I was at a convention and these were easy to get, if there wasn't a very long line, uh, I would get these. Though I'm I'm not a, a cover variant guy. Yeah. Uh, I'll make an exception for Joe. <laughs> and also they don't have a crazy price point, which uh, helps. Um, excellent. So uh, let's get into discussing this and start with a plot breakdown. The G.I. Joe team of Roblox, Lady J, Black Hat, Multo and Chuckles have made it back to the Republic of Pang Chan and are joined by Sherlock and Bottom Line to sift for clues at Al Cabra's warehouse. The investigation is cut short by the detonation of explosive ordnance hidden in the barrel that the warhead had been sat on previously. Al Cabra is at the airport getting ready to leave when the Joe's tracing his credit card purchase of a pizza set off his alerts. After dispatching a customs in inspector, he sends a team to the pizzeria. They arrive just in time to launch an attack on the Joes, who take them out without too much trouble. The Joes track them back to the airport just in time to walk into another explosive trap, but discover that Alcobra has another three warheads which are tracked back to the docks and secured. Meanwhile, via ticket-swapping shenanigans, Alcobra is able to make his getaway to the location of Amara Wapor. To be continued. So uh, let's uh, let's take it over maybe to our guest to to kick things off. Uh, Chuck, what are your kind of high level reactions to to this issue? Overall, it's a nonstop action story, and that's good. Um, I also say I think it's great that we're four issues into this and we still have no clear clue on who Al Cabra is and we're also following along and guessing and trying to figure things out so that, and being entertained. So that's can't ask for much more than that. I do think the five new characters that Hama has brought in, he wanted to bring these characters in. They're a little more inspired. He has a definite role for them and it seems like he likes writing them. I find that a little more entertaining and inspiring as opposed to him introducing, say, Charbroil in 1988. I feel like these characters are introduced for a purpose, and that's good. Uh, my top top down, I guess, was that we've seen, uh, this is part four, we've seen seen issues where we've had differing styles, and but, you know, progressing at a, quite a breakneck speed. We had, we had an intro where with uh, the introduction of you know Andrew Lee Griffiths, um, you know great great art uh, kicking off the the art, it's the introduction of Sherlock, this this sort of desert set um, army based you know convoy confront confrontation. Then then we're into part two, uh, an entirely different scene. You know now we're in uh, now we're in the, you know the Senate and there's all of, all of those senate shenanigans and and the the mysterious um invasion of you know who we would think would be al cobra into into their different different style different you know very packed issue again then then we're into it's a part three with sl gallant on arts you know providing some of the best art he's, he's done on the, on the book a real kind of action you know ad adventure and then we're into 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 this uh fourth part and it just feels like 
you know the brakes have been hit you know so, somewhat that that we're returning back to the scene of the the previous issue and it's a lot more of a quiet slowed down pace and it's a much more of you know we're shifting genres again it's maybe uh, more of a procedural procedural in investigation sifting through the the clues so i i think there's a little bit of disappointment just just in terms of it feels like you know we're we're not progressing at that same breakneck speed that we have for the previous three parts that that we've you know gone gone back to the the scene of the previous uh, issue my expectation would have been the way that the, it finished before that we'd never go you know we'd never head back to to pang chang again for this arc but uh here we are and as as chuck said it could it you know it could have easily been glossed over with a with a kind of a you know a summary box a little bit of exposition i really enjoyed this issue and thought that it it did proceed at a breakneck speed because i can't think of any other issue of gi joe where the joes or anyone is in a room doing something and then someone says there's a bomb get out and they run out and the bomb explodes and then eight pages later they're in another room and someone says there's a bomb get out and they all run out and a bomb goes off um so um I found that the pacing of this issue, I mean, there, you know, there wasn't a chase scene the, the, way, there, the way that there was in uh, a previous part of this story. Um, but um, there was, I thought there was so much back and forth with Sherlock figuring out sort of each uh, linear step of the puzzle, you know, like, you know, page three, everyone get out. And then um, page five, um, fire up the vamp. You're making a pizza run, right? And then we have this quick scene with Alcabra, and then, and then it keeps. I found this um, in terms of setting, skipping along from from scene to scene. Uh, good guys doing this, good guys doing that, bad guys doing this. This reminded me, as I think this whole much of this arc has for uh, some readers. This reminded me of an issue of Special Missions. Right. This one wasn't as self-contained as, say, you know, chapter one and chapter three of this arc. But regular Cobra is isn't in it. We just see the symbol two or three times. The Joes are not in costume, which is always going to remind me remind me of uh, is it Special Missions ten or eleven where there's it's like a roadblock and two other Joes on the cover. Like they're just was it roadblocks in like a bowler hat and has an umbrella. Um, you know, regular G.I. Joe is international, and, and so was G.I. Joe Special Missions. But G.I. Joe Special Missions all, always felt particularly international to me. I mean, besides the, like, baseball issue and the American hostage issue. And, and that we have, you know, a scene, like, on an airplane and a scene in a warehouse and a scene in a hangar. This all felt, um, this all felt very international to me, right? We've got these, all these new Joes who are, who are different. I was intrigued that... Alcabra at the end, we seem to know a little bit more about him because he's not in the same kind of disguise, right? We can, on the final page, because I, I think this is him, right? Because there's a little bit of him pretending to be other people as the issue wraps up. So this is starting to be a reveal, right? Well, he doesn't have a mustache, for example. My, my, my lingering question is, what what is the assassination of the title? Is that something that is going to happen in part five or get foiled in part five is that something that was almost going to happen in was it was it chapter two in the senate yeah i mean we've got one assassination 
there if uh, as the fallback position if there isn't if there isn't a future one it was the 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 senator was it is he called Lartner the the old yes thank you the old one um he, okay. he got he got you know killed off didn't he at the end uh yes um that you know in the moment that didn't feel like the sort of the, a big enough assassination because that character we hadn't met before has not been referred to since and was I think Hama like tying up a loose end. It's like, oh, well, he's he was in cahoots with Cobra. And so like, you know, Cobra takes him out, if I'm remembering correctly. Mm-hmm, um, yeah. So I wonder if, A, uh, will there be an attempted assassination in Chapter 5? But B, is it more likely that when Hama rewrote some of the story, uh, I think particularly Chapter 2, after the real-life events of January 6th in Washington, D.C., did the murder and the assassination in this story shift or change or sort of as a corollary in the larry hama writing writing style of making it up as he goes along um did he come up with a title and sort of like hope he would come up with (laughs) an assassination and an attempted murder and sort of and i I do not mean this in a silly in a lighthearted or joking no 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 i I think i'm on the same page as you did he not get around to it and like you know like hama has i mean he said in interviews like oh you know, it was sort of always hard to do like a story arc, like, you know, part one of three or part one of five. Uh, and I, I, you know, if you read the plots for like upcoming issues, the issues often then didn't uh, line up with that because, you know, it's like we need something for the catalog for the issue that's coming out in two months. It's like, oh, uh, well, I guess uh, someone will use the vamp and attack Cobra headquarters. Right. And it's like by the time he gets to writing that issue, that's not what he's doing. So I wonder if, if the script evolved past this initial sort of staking a claim to a dramatic and specific title. And if so, I'm a little disappointed in that I think Hama could pull off a really cool attempted assassination, but also like he has earned a lot of leeway in writing this book the way that he wants that I'm not going to be disappointed if like the title says there's going to be an attempted assassination. It's like, no, no, I'm still getting like exciting G.I. Joe stories. Yeah, well, I mean, like that, this silent option limited series, for example, Right. The that that title doesn't seem to make an awful lot of sense to to be honest. There there wasn't really much exploration of that idea of there being this, you know, silent option or um so again possibly a case where there's a a title with maybe a little bit of uh thought behind it, but but then the story takes a different different path and the title's not fully explored or explained. Also, I'm happy to be um, slightly misled by the title <laughs> and then be along the ride for twists and turns. Like, I don't need this to be, uh, I'm, I'm going to lazily pick, poke fun at Brian Michael Bendis. Uh, if this were like, I don't know, Ultimate Spider-Man in like the final couple of years of Bendis's run on Ultimate Spider-Man, if this, if this arc was called Murder by Assassination, there'd be like, be six chapters and the first three issues would be like the kingpin talking with someone else in like New York government about how he's going to assassinate someone. And then meanwhile, we like cut back and forth to Peter talking for pages and pages with like Aunt May. And then in like chapter five, Peter's like, I have to stop this assassination. And then in chapter six, he very slowly does. By the way, I read that whole run and I like that book. So I am making fun, but uh, I'm happy to be misled and misdirected whether fairly or not for the sake of 
like twists and turns in a fast-moving G.I. Joe story. I don't need this spelled out in chapter one. You know, like Cobra Commander is like, we're going to take out the president. Like, that would also be cool, but I don't need it. <laughs> oh, I also, I also think that, um, you know, with three covers or five covers, um, the information that's on any one cover becomes less important. And if you think back to, uh, you know, like crossovers or multi-part stories before the era of variant covers, you know, like an X-Men crossover, uh, Executioner Song, or... Um, Maximum Carnage, right? It's like Maximum Carnage, part one of 12. Maximum, or 16. Maximum Carnage, part two. That's like on every cover in the same font. By the time you're collecting cover B and cover RI and cover con exclusive A and B, those other covers don't say murder by assassination on the bottom. And I think they, and because the covers aren't carrying forward this plot element, you know, the cover B is like the Joes defending the mall in Washington, D.C., um, so I think we we also sort of, as readers, kind of lose this thread. Mm. Yeah, because that, that, you know, in terms of the way that the story is teed off uh, at the end of, I think it, I think it's the end of part part one where uh, Sherlock is in the in the hospital. Um, they, they sort of talk about conspiracy in, in DC. So it could be that in the early genesis of this this story, it, it, it was may, maybe planned to be you know, or, or thought to be quite a different story and much more DC focused, which maybe was the direction then the the Freddie Williams was kind of given for this uh, for this joining cover, which was only really explored in in part two. I'm also in terms of if if January sixth caused Larry Hama, we know it caused Larry Hama to change, whether directly or indirectly. I don't know if he decided on his own or he spoke with you know someone at IDW. Mm-hmm. Um, but he posted online, like, oh, I'm going to change this story that I'm writing. Part of I'm a little disappointed because I think that original story could have been great. But what's so interesting to me is what can this writer pull off having to some extent come up with a story and then in it needing to change gears? It's like th- this is part of what shows to me that Larry Hama is a talented writer, right? It's like, oh, what's his plan B? Mm. Or... Oh, okay. Well, he makes it up as he goes along. Well, he was making it up as he goes along on that one path. Now we're going to watch him make it up as make it up as he goes along <laughs> on this other path, and it's turning out pretty well, you know. And also, if chapter five ends up being a dud, you know, we can I can just say like, well, it's because he had to change gears at chapter two, and um, but um, uh, yes, you two, you do both, both of you make good points that there have been um, some attempts on characters lives uh in chapters one and two even if for me they don't quite rise to the level of like you know assassination because assassination is just a murder is a like is a murder of someone prominent right like mm-hmm. you know if, if if some character in a movie is like anyway <laughs> you you can cut that last sentence you all know what that word means um, <laughs> thanks thanks there tim in dictionary corner um a a question that i had and it, this is a big significant thematic question about uh, that has you know far reaching consequences um a question that i had reading this particular issue was does uh, al cobra strike you as the kind of guy who would do his own pizza run chuck 
I think the pizza run interjects a little bit of humor and realism into it. Um, even the bad guys have to eat sometimes. And it's a little tongue-in-cheek and kind of funny in the uh, usual homaism that he's doing something like this, having an order of pizza. Um, because you never see bad guys, or good guys for that matter, in comic books or action movies ever stopping to eat or go to the bathroom. I can just imagine like Avengers Endgame at the end, they show up and Avengers are all there to fight Thanos. All of a sudden Thor says, ah, excuse me, I gotta go take a leak. So it's a, it's a little kind of um, humorous realism. Yeah, you know, the way that, you know, he dispatches people, including people that, you know, on his own, uh, on his own team, I'd, I'd expect him to be more than happy to be bossing people about and sending them down to the pizza shop to pick up his pizza rather than doing him himself and putting it on his own personal credit card. I wonder if this is Hama writing backwards from a problem. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, I need to give some yeah, yeah. breadcrumb for the Joes to trace him. Like, okay, well, you know, he got away with the nuke and he swapped clothes with the so-and-so and then he bought swapped places with someone else and he's not on that plane like oh the pizza (laughs) and and that might be sort of inelegant and too transparent but you know at a certain point like we do see the machinery of the storytelling you know it's like sherlock sure knows what to do like every moment you know like get the dod to stop that plane like chuckles go over here like everyone jump on the vamp but yes now that you say it uh that does seem uh, beneath the station of this sort of villainous leader type mastermind. And we're given a big clue about his identity by his pizza choice. So, so you, you know, read in and what kind of guy would order the, the ingredients that, that he's asked for. He's got a special pie, which when, you, when you're in Southeast Asia often means that it's got, um, you know, some narcotics on crumbled on the top. But um, I don't know if it means that in this context, uh, a special pie with pineapple uh, oof, on top of a pizza, mm. uh, pineapple, lapchong, and kimchi, which uh, is an unconventional pizza. I think the ingredients and making such a big deal out of it is reminding me of something like the Dreadnoughts would do in the writings of G.I. Joe. Like, they would always have a reference to the grape soda, and it's like, it was a dead giveaway. Oh, that's a Dreadnoughts. So I thought this kind of playing that up, I, I, don't, I didn't catch a clue out of it but I thought it was a little odd, if not interesting. And similarly, while we're talking about food that Alcabra likes to eat, on page two, Sherlock is sniffing his takeout and said, this is local food doused with stinky fermented fish sauce. Uh, this is what the indigenous thugs were eating. Oh, okay, so it's right. That, that food is the other guy's food. Yeah. Um, but yes, this issue does, does take a couple panels out uh, to have food be a part of the uh, story or motivation or the sort of breadcrumb trail. Chuck, do, do you have do you have some theories on 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 who it might be? Do you think it's a an all new original character, or do you think it's an, an existing character? And if so, who might it be? I kind of think it would probably be Firefly. That just feels like something that would happen. We haven't seen Firefly in a while, and this could just very well be a new identity for the guy. I uh, will say, that, um, if this had been Devil's Due, however, I feel like they would have picked a C-level character or some random background character and then bring them back as Alcabra. That would feel like a very Devil's Due kind of thing. So I hope it's not some C-level character. 
for instance, like um, Clutch's buddy from issue 20 in New Jersey. If that turned out to be Alcabra, I would, I would roll my eyes. Oh, it's a very devil's do move. Yeah, bubbling away at the top of our list, I think, as as well. Firefly with uh, uh, with my uh, option two being being um, uh, Major Blood, not Major Blood, um, Black Major as as my secondary choice. But yeah, could could even be could even be Major Blood with uh, with his moustache um, shaved off. When I got to the final page and we see who I think is Alcabra now in a, a new disguise and more of his face is visible, uh, but now he's wearing gloves uh, or he's wearing gloves again uh, and he's in a white hat and a white suit. Um, wait, am I reading this right? He Did he swap clothes with someone a second time to get into this? this I don't know uh, if it says the. I admit, that I, admit I traded my passport and ticket with some guy. Okay, no. Mm. So um, so this I think this is just Alcabra's this is just what he's wearing for this for this scene and when it's, I got and this it's fo- quite similar to to what he wore in part two as well okay thank you for that reminder when i got to this final page i, so I sort of for a moment i i racked my my brains and i thought is is there something in this outfit in the details you know like it's a hat or he's got this kind of glasses or he's got this kind of gloves or the color of the gloves or the sort of paperwork that he's holding. Is there something that I'm supposed to see which which can give me a hint as to who he is, whether or not it's a, a character that we know? Like, you know, oh, if he had like a green um, handkerchief or, you know, oh, if the, um, you know, if his tie had like a certain pin on it and uh, I got to the final panel and I thought, no, either there isn't a clue here or I'm not like smart enough um, to get it. And I, uh, I think I brought this up uh, when we did chapter two. It's also possible that as of writing chapter four of five, writer Larry Hama doesn't know mm. who yeah. Al Cabra is or has like two or three choices and sort of settles on one of them while he's writing um, chapter five. And, you know, that is that's that's a, an exciting and risky uh, kind of writing. I, I suspect Hama knows who this is by chapter four. But, um, you know, there's there's another connection to Cobra uh, in this issue. This is this mm. is also one of my eye spies because the the uh, cargo plane that's uh, sort of white, uh, green and red mm-hmm. and also the like dark gray, I guess it's sort of a Humvee or like yeah. armored armored car. Armored Jeep thing, yeah. Thank you. Both of them have a variation of the Cobra logo on them. And help me out here. Is this the like Stratoviper Cobra logo? Is it the Cobra logo with the extra wings on the sides? Yeah, does this does this appear on the Rattler? Yes, yes, yes. That that is the that is the Rattler variation of the Cobra insignia. So I when I saw this on that plane I sort of thought I thought two things at the same time. One, like in the world of GI Joe, if you see a Cobra logo, like Cobra isn't top secret, you know. Like in issue one fifty six, they like take over the White House, right? Like people know who Cobra is. So if you see a Cobra logo and you're a regular person in the world of the GI Joe comics, you'd run the other way. And so, is 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 it sort of trying to have it both ways where? That sort of Cobra logo is for us the same way that like when an Arbco truck or one of these other um, Cobra anagrams is like dropped into the background, 
like we the reader know what it is and like the joes don't know what it is and the like none of the regular population knows what it is so so on the surface on the surface i thought oh that's some kind of cobra plane and oh that's some kind of cobra armored uh jeep thing but also why is it the strato viper version is that Hama or Andrew Lee Griffith making like a small mistake or is there something extra in that like oh is El Cabra is it Wild Weasel you know like probably not but is it something to do with the Cobra Air Corps mm. and uh, yeah and and it's you know quite a big red red flag that that this is Cobra I sort of open you know working out working in quite in quite the open you know the the plane company is called Nuguhia, N-G-U-H-E-A, um, uh, which is Thai for, for Cobra. Um, they've got these big Cobra logos on their their vehicle. So it doesn't, you know, it seems not very inconspicuous. And I, I yeah, I, I wonder to the extent that, that maybe the direction in the script is is of that sort of winged Cobra and copying it from the Rattler uh, or whether that's entirely artist interpretation. It might be that another artist would have potentially done something more subtle rather than it being you know an in-your-face cobra with with wings um yeah would would be interesting to know to know that or, or not because you'd expect you'd expect this team to be, want to be inconspicuous uh, so get my conspicuous and inconspicuous you'd want them to be inconspicuous in the way that they would operate and and you know to, to act somewhat in secret so so to have a giant great cobra slapped on the side of your vehicle's um, doesn't seem particularly stealthy way of uh, operating. Yeah, I, uh, the, the the discussion that that we were having earlier as well prompted me for a, for another thought on who potentially Al Cowbra could be. So this is my choice number three. Down, um, this could be Scrap Iron. Was it Chuck? You were talking about sort of you know the type of thing that Devils would do would be you know picking out some C lister characters from uh, from the roster and, and making use of them and uh, yeah. You know, Scrap Iron's a well-loved character. I, I, you know, so I know that certain people would probably be writing in saying, "Well, you know, why not? Why don't we get to, to use use Scrap Iron again?" Uh, he has got blue, you know, blue signifiers on his outfit, just in the way that Al Cowbra has got a blue hood and um, tie. Um, he wears uh, sunglasses. He's a character that's not really being used a huge amount, so it'd be nice to see him come back. And he's also a character that specialises in things that go boom, um, which is is one of uh, Al Cowbra's uh, specialities in terms of having that big rack of um, explosives ar- around him on the bandolier, and you know having uh, having all of these warheads you know dotting around. So yeah, it sounds credible. I I don't think I uh, I'd be okay if it's scrap iron. I don't think I want it to be scrap iron because. Though you lay out some parallels, you know, like, I mean, Scrap Iron works for Destro, right? He's, he's an armament guy. He's a weapons developer. And he's, you know, he's part of Cobra or he's part of Mars. So, yes, he, he is a kind of terrorist. There's nothing in the G.I. Joe backstory that Scrap Iron is a leader. And, you know, if he's an inventor, I think of him more like like a follower, not in a bad way, but he works for Jestro or he works for Cobra Commander. So um, if there are hints, I haven't been getting them. Uh, I mean, in general, whoever El Cabra might be. And I think at this point, I'd actually be most satisfied if he is no one in particular. He's just a new character. And he's just a new character who keeps his identity 
uh, secret and he becomes another sort of, you know, Destro, Black Major or Dr. Mindbender or Dr. Venom character mm-hmm. who either leads his own faction that somehow relates to Cobra or ends up working for Cobra. But I, I feel like there isn't any gra- there isn't a lot of there isn't enough ground laid for it to be like Xandar or you know like scrap iron such that a reveal one month from now I'd say yeah that's it <laughs> like at this point um and I know these characters are not um a lot of people's favorites at this character at this point if like next issue it's some like sort of undercover blue ninja that is like mastered speech and doesn't sound like <laughs> a robot and doesn't go like bzzz, or doesn't have like ticks like that sort of feels in keeping with like well who could this be because i know a lot of people who it maybe uh shouldn't be one wild card theory however it could be billy cobra commander's son and storm shadow's former apprentice that 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 seems like it's something that hama would actually dig dig up dig down and pull out and i'm trying to remember the exact issue that billy died but i think he died right at the time of the uh, blue ninja's first appearance so i could see something how this would tie into not only this arc, but it could also pay off the Blue Ninja stuff that's been driving us crazy for the past few years. So that would be uh, exciting if it is Billy. Also, Billy's uh, he has a um, artificial leg and artificial eye that could tie into the artificial limbs of both Sherlock and Sightline. Like I said, this feels like something Hama might do. I don't put too much... Um, wait into this theory though because i think it's kind of a wild card one i do like that theory though excellent um i want to go back to um uh that one little um observation i made about how this feels like a an issue of special missions and the joes aren't in their costume although i'm reminded looking at page one that chuckles is but you know chuckles this costume is sort of a joke because it's you know like he's undercover but he like obviously sticks out and yet you know some guy on a plane in a hawaiian shirt it's like oh that's just someone on, anyway Um, I, I do wish, I do wish that there was a way to get more of the Joes into costume in this issue. And I know it doesn't quite make sense because they're on a certain kind of mission and they're in a hurry and there hasn't been a lot of time since the last issue. But, uh, you know, I mean, since the last issue, I mean, like roadblocks ended the last issue, like having cocktails on a ship in the ocean and, you know, his costume isn't, it's not like... It's not like fatigues, like roadblocks, you know, like a version two and uh, I guess it'd be version four. The one that's uh, sort of like Aqua from uh, like 90, I don't know, two or three. Like those don't jump out to me as like this guy is in the military. And, you know, Lady J's like civilian or sort of undercover clothes here are like close enough. She's got a hat. She's wearing mm-hmm. green. But I just I just always want to see the Joes in their in their costumes. You know, like if they're all going underwater, they can all be in wetsuits. But (laughs) at the same time, and this would be dumb, but I would really enjoy it. I'd love it if they were all in wetsuits that were somehow color coded to their costumes, you know, like um, so uh, let's, you know, let's give give Roadblock his 1986 vest. Yeah. And, and, you know, in the previous issue, they were undercover. So it made made sense that they weren't in their, their costumes. But this in this issue, it's it's them doing, you know, looking Wrap back up. at the crime scene there's there's yeah. less reason that they they couldn't just be in their you know in their proper outfits really. and and i'm fine you know like sp- sort of splitting the difference i'm fine if um 
Black Hat and Molto. It's like they can keep wearing what they were wearing before because we haven't quite established their their costumes as if they were to get an action figure, you know. But like, I need a little more. I need a little bit of gear or like a little bit, a little more splash of color, a couple accents, you know, like a belt or something. Okay. Should we do some I Spy looking at the little details that we noticed? Yeah. I spy with my little eye. Chuck, was there was there anything that, that, that you noticed in the details that you wanted to shout out? I couldn't find too many unusual details. Um, I'm glad you guys pointed out that Winged Cobra logo because I didn't notice that the first time through. I spy reoccurring new Joes, and it seems like Larry is having lots of fun exploring the story with these new characters as the driving force. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. They can organically inform the story or lead the story. Yeah, and and you know, clearly he's having fun playing with these these new Joes that that you know, they're very very much a part of this arc and it's been hinted that they will be coming back as, you know, I think it's part 2 of the spotlight issues uh, in the in the future. Um I've seen some criticism that that um it doesn't necessarily feel like a GI Joe issue because I guess they're out of costumes and and with the exception of Chuckles and Lady J and Roadblock um they're they're all these brand new characters but i i don't have any sort of issue with that i mean i mean i'm enjoying the introduction of these uh new characters and and seeing whether where the story takes them (laughs) it's a break from the blue ninjas um i spotted uh the return of the battered yellow van from the previous issue uh complete with dents to the front and bullet holes in the side from from roadblock shooting his Marduce uh, through through the side uh, earlier on. So uh, nice to have that little bit of uh, continuity. Um, they probably got to return it to the uh, rental place in, uh, in, uh, in, in this location, the, sorry, in Panchang as, as well. So uh, there's, there's that. Uh, the other little thing that I saw was that we have Lady J in disguise as an air hostess, um, which is a repeat of uh, something that happened in the special missions preview all the way back in G.I. Joe issue 50, where <laughs> she uh, foils a uh, terrorist plot by sneaking on board a plane uh, disguised as a air hostess. I spy the vamp. The vamp Mark One makes mm-hmm. a return to G.I. Joe comics. It does. And... Indeed. Um, I think it it fits here because, you know, if it was the Havoc or, you know, the Desert Fox, something more ostentatious, you know, like driving around the streets in these warehouses, I feel like, you know, this sort of just looks like... I, I, there are two giant guns on the back, but uh, I feel like this can blend in more with civilian traffic in the warehouse district. And and probably the probably the first time that the vamp has been employed to, uh, to full... Uh, you know terrorists full of lead in quite the way that it it has here uh you know a a, a potential hammerism that, that i spotted in conjunction with the the vamp was when it's shooting these uh these guys at the docks um sherlock says nicely done malto roadblock didn't even have to unlimber the heavy artillery so you know roadblock's just sitting there in uh in the passenger seat with his uh marduce uh unfired um I th- yeah i suspect that that's uh larry there using the dialogue to just explain something away that uh, he noticed in the in the art that would otherwise perhaps uh you know call attention to what you know what, what Ro- what's robot doing 
this uh, this panel was sort of halfway to uh, um, an error detected for me because the vamp's rear gun uh, is traversed downward and the two bad guys on the right are getting perforated but Molto is also high up on the vamp using his sidearm and the sound effects blam 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 sort of looks like he fired to the left and then he moved his arm and fired to the right and yet the perspective on the four shots going through the middle bad guy line up with the vamp gun so i look at this panel and i wonder is there a missing sound effect for the vamp gun firing that would be something bigger than blam blam potentially um, there's a missing sound effect for the vamp but it make the two blam blams either side of multo make make sense in terms of the the guy on the far left being shot um, with the arrows leading towards Multo, and then the way where he's aiming now at the towards the the right sort of indicates, I guess that that he has shot and then moved and then shot again. So it re- it reads okay to me. Again, but if if he if Multo is if it's sort of like left and right, if he's shooting in both directions, then then the vamp doesn't also need to be firing. This this panel's a little confusing for me in sort of the like second to second continuity that either it's missing a sound effect or the like it's mostly that it's missing a sound effect um and speaking of sound effects uh i have i have an error detected uh two panels earlier uh the three bad guys this is Mm -hmm. this is page 16 panel three um uh, and so is a gaggle of local thugs yells malto as the vamp is driving toward us uh, there's a, a weird double printing of the sound effect for the three bad guys mm, firing their their weapons. Brap. Brap. So I can't read it. And then on the next page, uh, the final panel, this is page 17, panel 5, Roadblock is standing and holding his giant gun, and the sound effect of him cocking it is, the sound effect is filled in in dark gray, mm. and you, it almost disappears, but it's a, there's a cut chunk that's printed right on top of his oh, gun brief, that yeah. you can't see because the bottom of his gun is black. And I don't know if that's a lettering mistake or a coloring mistake or a production mistake, but that's it's a tiny, tiny thing that totally bums me out. And I'm going to send an email to <laughs> letters at idwpublishing.com and ask them to fix that for the trade. I'll, I'll also tell them that the issue was great. <laughs> Excellent. There used to be a pudding that was over-egged. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. At first it was British, but then it was Commonwealth. You know the pudding. You know the pudding. But now there's a new player in town. A comic book writer of of some renown. He's using real world examples and peppering the issues with with lots of samples. It's a Larry Hammer colloquialism. He's talking G.I. Joe and all its heroism. Can you guess what it is? Is it something new? Now listen as Larry drops a slice of real life on you. Um, I had a, I had a colloquialism. Hmm. And that was uh, sibilance, which is a great word. Does the anyone from the class know what sibilance is? Yeah, we talk about this when my animation students do their uh, recording. Sibilance is is that's the fancy word for the s sound in speech. Mm-hmm. Uh, and when you're recording into a microphone, you either want um, a, a, like a guard or a, a mic screen. 
so that you don't overmodulate your audio or like spit onto mm-hmm. your uh, microphone. And in this scene, it's Sherlock tracking some of the evidence from Alcabra. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. She's looking f- um, because of the sibilance in his speech. She thought that then it might mean that there's some DNA that's been left on his uh, on his phone. Um, I had an example of sibilance, which I'll, I'll take off my pop guard to make this more effective, perhaps. Sadly, Serpentor sold seven venomous serpents to Storm Shadow in San Francisco. Very good. Very good. <laughs> Thank you. Do, you have, uh, do we do favorite lines of dialogue? Quote of the week, 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 quote of the week. Um, my favorite line is uh, when the um, the customs officer at the airport, the guy in white who ends up getting shot in the head, uh, is holding a green booklet, a sheaf of paper, and he's he's yelling at Alcabra. These flight plans are ridiculously vague. I can't possibly approve for takeoff. If you want to get your merchandise off the ground, I will require a more substantial gratuity. This is this is funny because. Because this character is being a jerk, <laughs> because this character is doing his job but getting in the way of a bad guy, like Hama is creating license for the bad guy to do the bad thing, which is mm-hmm. kill this guy. You know, it's like the scene in Star Wars where the Moff whoever says to Vader, you know, like your your superstitious ways don't don't buy any credibility, and then you know Vader uh, strangles him. Right. It's like, well, if he's a jerk, then the audience can sort of root for Darth Vader to be even more of a jerk. But I also appreciate here that, you know, once again, Hama is referring to the the business of like move physical movement and trade and like that things have weight, you know, like you can't just like jump on the Avengers Quinjet and fly to the Savage Land. It's like, well, you know, in G.I. Joe, the Savage Land would have like a radio tower and there'd be like five people from the UN making sure that like terrorists don't go to the Savage Land and like take it over, right? And so there's this there's this one panel scene where this airport customs guy, this official gets in the way of the bad guy and says, no, you have to do some paperwork or in this case, <laughs> like bribe me. and. Uh, you know, I, I, I sound like a broken record because like you wouldn't see this in a Punisher comic or a Captain America comic. This is both um, like smart in that it's realistic. It's also funny, but it also in terms of like the gears behind the machinery of writing, it gives this bad guy an ex- more of an excuse to shoot this guy, which is shocking because... Uh, you know, like the, the background of that next panel is all red and he shoots him in the head and Andrew Lee Griffith, you know, it's all silhouetted, but he draws blood, right? Um, so for the what this line of dialogue represents, um, even though that's not really what the issue is about, um, I, I like the business of putting this roadblock, ha, this roadblock in the way of the bad guy. Cool. Uh, my my favorite line was the, the one with the sibilance. Um, I heard him shouting when he ambushed my convoy near the Trucial Bismar border. A lot of sibilance in his speech. I bet there's saliva on that mouthpiece. Uh, a nice, uh, a nice use of uh, a, a words that I wasn't familiar with, and uh, and a sort of a, a good sort of line into their investigation, which 
yeah, we, we haven't yet seen resolved. So that phone is being sent away. So could that be part of the resolution in part five? We will find also, out. Also, something that the three of us didn't refer to so far in this episode, uh, we were all happy in the previous episode when the Joes take out that nuke. There are three more nukes. Which seemed to be resolved very, very quickly, right? That they they got to the docks and I think they stopped them at the docks? Uh, yes. So I guess my point is that um, Alcabra is, in this issue with him sneaking away sort of three different times, three different ways, <laughs> they keep thinking that they've got him. Yeah, and he's not there. And are you, oh, it's this guy! Like, oh no, no, it's not him. He he like snuck away. He traded places. He snuck away. Um, that this is um, escalating, and you know we know that. Uh, um, I can. Uh, uh, Chuckle says we can have a detail nab him when he deplanes in vanilla, uh, Manila, and then Sherlock says, "I have a bad feeling this is only going to get worse." Mm-hmm. Right, like. It's you know where where is he going to where is Alcabra going to end up in the next issue, you know Springfield Joe headquarters Manila somewhere else Paris. Well, I don't know. He's in he's in the the new location of Amara Wapur at the moment. We shall find out. Um, so let's uh, let's do our scoring of of this. So we do it out of ten. Uh, Chuck, why don't you go go first? What would what would your score be for this? I would score this a seven. There's some sibilance there in that number that uh, Chuck just recited. Seven. Yeah, I'm probably I'm probably somewhere similar. Somewhere similar. Um, yeah, something like a seven. I think it's you know it's a solid issue, but but um, I don't think it for me it quite lives up to the the rest of uh, the issues in in the arc. Yes, this is a seven uh, for me as well. Um, it, you know, sometimes a GI Joe issue is the big battle after things have been set up for a couple issues. Sometimes a GI Joe issue is the beginning of some new plot threads. Sometimes an issue of GI Joe is the continuation of like an A plot and a B plot and like the beginnings of a C plot. You know, there's some Joes like in the Arctic doing something and then we cut back to the Joes in the desert and they're further along and their thing is like going south. And then like, meanwhile, back at headquarters, someone's like, I need to talk to you. And like a new plot thread begins. Um, and those issues sometimes feel like transitions where it's, it's all the important business of moving characters and plot forward, but it doesn't feel like a definitive end to a a, a mission or a a mini arc and one of the things that i like about gi joe comics is that these again this is my term and it's imperfect these transition issues um, are still really satisfying even if they don't end on like a killer uh, uh, cliffhanger or even if sort of all three subplots still progress and one of them doesn't wrap up and the previous chapters in this story all felt like parts of a larger story and also really satisfying single issues. This one doesn't quite do that, but that's okay because it is part four of five um, and there is enough forward momentum in uh, tracking down El Cabra, going to different places, Joe's doing what Joe's do, right? Which is like 
take out bad guys, use some gear and Joe vehicles, and then a, a spotlight for a couple particular Joes who have um, some expertise. Um, so uh, I like this issue. It's not not quite as sweet as the previous couple, but uh, it's a great part four of five, and I look forward to seeing uh, part five cap it all off. Um, and I think that's a good, it's, a, it's an interesting point. I was, I, was I, I intended to talk about is the fact that G.I. Joe often continues with a lot of momentum and almost like, you know, very sharp cuts between, you know, something finishing and something starting uh, again. And this feels somewhat unusual in terms of its, you know, we would, you know, moved on. Joe's were, were on a boat away from Pang Chang. And then we've kind of gone back to the scene of the crime almost um, with a, a revisiting of the previous scene and sort of sifting through it, um, which seems uh, slightly, uh, slightly unusual. Um, but uh, yeah, I think most of these issues have been uh, relatively their own thing and, and um, uh, you know, uh, interesting different takes. I think, yeah, shall we move on to everyone's favourite segment, Inuendo? Attention. At this moment, you are now listening to Talking Inuendo. If you are offended by words like Sucking. Flesh wound. Willy. Pete. Balls. Crystal balls. Hypno shield. Whatever. Take the tape out now. This is not a pop album. And by the way, suck my grandmother's brick in a Prada handbag. Yes, Chuck, you have to unmute for this so Mark (laughs) can try and make you titter yes so so the purpose of this segment is is that uh i will read out a list of five gi joe names uh, and my intent is to try and make you titter just by pure virtue of the legitimate gi joe name Uh, and i will stop you know if i succeed so so yeah five or, or less okay you're both unmuted here we go Clutch Grand Slam Short Fuse Tunnel Rat Spearhead and Max Last last one's pretty last one's pretty good. Ah dear. I've been foiled yet again. Okay. Sorry, it wasn't maybe wasn't the strongest, but um yeah, sorry about that. I um, the first two names kind of threw me off. I thought of Clutch and Grand Slam. I thought of the uh, bands of the same name. Um, Clutch is one of my favorite bands, by the way. And um, even Spearhead, I thought of um, Michael Franti's band, and that, that kind of threw me off as well. So sorry about that. <laughs> I, I was quite pleased with Tunnel Rat. That one made me um, mentally titter. Um, but there we go. Uh, that's that's the end of uh, Inuendo and me, me defeated uh, one more time. Uh, yeah, next time on Talking Joe, we uh, will be continuing to read ARA as it comes out. So it will be uh, 285 now, the finale of uh, Murder by Assassination. We will also be covering the Disavowed series as we continue to work through that. We have a special interview and we will be covering the Frontline series next. So we'll be covering the first four issues of that. Uh, We also have 
a awards show uh, covering the f- first 25 issues of the Devil's Due uh, run, picking out some highlights. So remains for me to say thanks again to Chuck, our special guest today. Uh, go and check out his magnificent website at option38.com. Uh, thanks, thanks for joining us, Chuck. Thank you for having me. I had an absolute blast. Like I said, this is the first time I've ever been in a podcast, and it was a lot of fun. You guys are great. Thanks, Chuck. That was great. Um, Tim, where can people find you? A realamericanbook.com. Excellent. Have you got a tease for, for what people might uh, expect to, to find uh, coming soon? Yeah, another... Uh, another G.I. Joe alum, someone who worked on G.I. Joe, died uh, in the last two weeks. And uh, I have an interview with him from several years ago, which I thought I would uh, post. Crikey. It is, uh, you, you're, you're sort of you staked your claim as the G.I. Joe's uh, leading obituary site, unfortunately. But, um, but sterling work with... Uh, with the with with those pieces and and um you know ex- excellent uh nuggets and interviews that that you feature as as part of those uh those highlights of those uh, incredible creators you can find uh, us on all the usual places talkingjoe.co.uk is the website that has links to all of those places talking joe a geo joe podcast on facebook on twitter on Instagram, there's links to the emails on the website. We are also on Patreon. That is patreon.com slash Talking Joe. Uh, big thanks to the backers there. Richard, Sam, Jay, Bill, Christopher and Justin, who are all getting early access to episodes as well as some exclusive content. Um, so big thanks again to Chuck for, for joining us as our, our guest today. And... Uh, yeah i think we're done and as we know when all is said and done you could catch us down the road because we've been talking joe and we're all out of joes laters and that's the end